we are carrying on this morning our sermon series, Where Do We Grow From Here? And this is taken from um, a sermon series that the current president of the Baptist Union, or Baptist Together, called Ken Benjamin, uh, is taking around the country and, and using it as a challenge to Baptist churches. So every year the Baptist Union, Baptist Together, have one person who for the year becomes the president and they bring some sort of teaching theme. And this is Ken Benjamin's teaching theme. By the way, he's the minister of Chichester uh, Baptist Church, which isn't too far away from here. And we have been looking at the fact that if we want to grow as a church, if we want to be relevant to the society and the community that we're in, we have to realise that perhaps the community out there has moved on a little bit further than we have. Things have changed out there and we haven't necessarily changed to keep up with those changes. And uh, it, we used, in the first time we, we used the phrase, which he's used, is moving the goalposts. The goalposts have moved. We've been aiming for that, and without realising the goalposts have shifted somewhere else, and we're no longer relevant and no long, longer reaching the people uh, we should do. This morning, we're going to be looking at what, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. If you haven't got a Bible, there is some at the back there. I would recommend you grab yourself one, because we're looking at that passage, although it will appear on the screen as well. I'm just getting my Bible out as well. I'm going to read it and then we're going to try and unpack it because you might read and go, what on earth was that about? Which is what I did earlier this week. This is a problem when you dive into partway through a particular letter. This letter is to the church in Corinth and you dive in partway through and you don't necessarily understand exactly what Paul, who wrote this, is going on about. But chapter 5, verses 11 to 15, let's read it. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our minds, as some say, it is for God's. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. In our... um, discipleship group, uh, our sort of home group meets every Tuesday, we're doing something new where we, if we, we look at a passage, we read it through once in one version, read it through again in another version, and then just to, uh, on our own, we just read it through one uh, last time and just see if anything jumps out. And this is one of those passages where actually it's not really obvious what is going on. What is Paul talking about here? When we don't know the context and we don't know why he's saying these things, sometimes it's difficult to, um, to pick out what, what is Paul going on about. And as I said, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a, a struggle for me uh, this week to work out what is Paul talking about. And actually, this is not helped by our, our translations. It seems there's quite a lot of difference in the translations of this passage. And I'll pick that up a little bit uh, later. And actually reading through that, which is probably slightly different to what I was reading this, this week, even there it's like, oh, that's not exactly fitting with what I'm going to say. But never mind, we'll, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. I don't know if anyone said to you, you're not what I expected. 
You're not what I was expecting. I, I get this a lot, not so much now, but certainly when I, when I went into ministry when I was 33. I'm a bit older than that now. And people would come to me and say, you're not a typical vicar. Oh, you're not exactly what we were expecting. I don't know what they're expecting, but I'm guessing it's probably someone who's a, who's a bit older and uh, maybe a little bit plumper and um, maybe a little drones a little bit more. And they say to me, you're not what we were expecting. And so much so that when I do hospital visits uh, or if I do funerals, I now wear a dog collar because otherwise people don't know who I am. I'm not what they would expect. I found in hospitals, if you wear a dog collar, this is not a recommendation to you, but if you wear a dog collar, you can get in anywhere. You know, it's security is tight in hospitals, but put a dog collar on and the doctors are opening the doors for you. And, uh, yeah, but it didn't stop me being told for sitting, sitting on someone's bed. So it doesn't stop probably matrons telling you off, but um, it does get you everywhere. And a dog collar for me signified who I am, because otherwise people, they say, you're not what we were expecting. And I think the problem with Paul, and what Paul is talking about a bit in this passage, is that he was not what people were expecting. See, Paul at that time, you had lots of churches cropping up all over the, uh, the area, and um, some of them were... Peter's church, some were Paul's churches, some were Apollos' churches. There were missionaries going all over the place, the apostles and Paul, starting these churches, this group of people who believed in Jesus, who were trying to work out what it is to be a follower of Jesus together. And people would come along and they would teach them. And there was lots of different teachers out there. And Paul was one of the particular teachers, probably one of the most important teachers of that time, so much so that many of the letters he wrote to that early fledgling church has been kept and recorded in our Bible. Paul has written a lot of what is in the New Testament in terms of the letters, anyway. But for some people, I looked at Paul and went, you're not really what we were expecting. Because there was lots of people going around who, who maybe met certain criteria that was important to those early Christians. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, you already know from the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, they had a big thing about spiritual outwardness, talking in funny languages, maybe having funny ecstatic experiences. It was a lot about the external show was important to them. And when it came to an itinerant preacher or teacher going around teaching churches, first of all, they usually came with a letter of recommendation. They didn't just turn up out of the blue. You didn't know who this person was. So they would have a letter saying from maybe some well-known figure, one of the apostles maybe saying, you can trust this person is a good teacher. So they had a letter of recommendation. Second thing, they usually had some sort of Jewish ancestry or claims some sort of Jewish ancestry. It's like saying, well, Jesus was a Jew and I'm a Jew, therefore you can trust what I am saying. And so, you know, people were looking for that Jewish ancestry. It's a bit like in my 20s, don't tell us my wife, she's not here, but in my 20s I had that fantasy of going to America where all the women would love my English accent and I would have a lovely time. You know, it's the same sort of thing. Actually, if, if people, you know, if you're as a teacher, say, I'm, I'm Jewish. Ah, oh, you're like Jesus. You must be worth listening to. Another thing they were looking for was ecstatic, visionary experiences. They wanted someone who claimed to have some sort of, you know, direct connection with God. And we're maybe going to some funny trances and speaking some funny languages and have some direct connection with God. 
They also wanted uh, signs to be formed, you know, miracles and wonders, some sort of proof that they were coming from God and working on behalf of God. Basically, they were looking for someone who was possibly a little bit crazy, a little bit off the wall, a little bit different. And if someone came along and claimed to be a teacher and given him the words of God who seemed fairly normal, well, that's a bit of a disappointment, isn't it? If you think back to the Gospels, you had John the Baptist turn up, probably just walking out the desert, preaching to the Jews that the Messiah was coming and they needed to repent. And John the Baptist met pretty much all the requirements. He looked slightly crazy. He wore clothes that they would associate with the Old Testament prophets. He probably had wild hair and a big beard and grubby clothes and spoke with you know force and strength. And people just signed up. But when Jesus came along, they looked at Jesus and went, well, he doesn't really fit the model. Yes, he's performing miracles, but he was eating and drinking with sinners, people, you know, the worst of the worst. And he wasn't really being hyper-religious. He was, or, was he being a bit lax in, in what he, he allows people to do? So much so that John the Baptist, who was, by the way, was Jesus' cousin, when he's in prison because he was doing all this odd stuff, all this religious stuff, ends up in prison. He sends a message out to Jesus saying, are you really the Messiah? You can almost imagine thinking, because you don't look like it, you don't really fit the picture. So Paul here is following Jesus' footsteps some, in some ways. and he's, he's, People say, you're not what we were expecting. And what he does in this passage is addressing not everyone, but particularly his supporters, those people who know him personally, those people that Paul brought to the Lord and taught them what, about Jesus. He says, you know us, you know me. And I want you to be proud of us. I want you to be proud of me. Not because of outward show. Not because of all the signs and wonders or crazy religious chances that I go into, but because you know my heart. And surely that's much more important. And yeah, I do have spiritual experiences, but in some ways, that's between me and God. For you, I want to be intelligent. I want to give reasoned arguments. One thing Paul was good at doing was giving reasoned, intelligent arguments. He wanted to persuade people by his heart and by his logic, rather than persuading them by all the weird, wacky stuff that he was doing. And then he comes to this key pivotal verse, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Compels us. And I just want to pick up on that. I don't know how many different versions we've got in the room of this particular passage, but there's anyone, if you look at your Bible now, I mean, this is from the NIV, has anyone got a different word to compels? Put your hands up if you've got a different word to compels constrains, thank you, what we got over here, Lee? Control. Controls, constrains, controls, compels. Anyone else got something different? Hmm? Ruled, okay. Anyone else got something different? Drives. Anything more? Right. Urges us on. Excellent. I think you've got pretty, most, most, pretty much most of them. If we just look at some key uh, Bible translations here, ESV is English standardised version. Okay, and that says controls us. Good news, GN, good news Bible, that's the one I had as a kid. Uh, ruled by, King James Version, 
constrains us, actually says constraineth us or something like that. Uh, New Revised Standard Version is urges us and the Wycliffe Version says drives us. Now you can look at that going, what is it? They're all quite different, aren't they? And this is the problem when you take the Bible that was originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek in a different language and we try and translate it into our English language and sometimes the words don't quite fit. So you end up with different translators doing it in different ways. Now, some of you may be able to go back to the original Greek and work it out, but actually what's quite useful, and this is why I said in the discipleship group we tend to look at two different versions, is if you look at lots of different versions around a particular word, you can get some sort of idea about what the, the people were, Paul was originally trying to get across. Actually, if you want to skip all those different versions, get the Amplified version, and it sticks it all in. Controls, urges, and impels us. This is why the Amplified version is like this big. Because it just uses loads and loads of different words. So what does this mean? This word. What word is it we're supposed to be using? Well, I looked up the translation. And really it is continuing pressure applied to cause action. Continuing pressure applied to cause action. So Paul is saying, on my ministry, the things I'm teaching you, the way I'm acting, the the fact I'm putting so much effort into you, the fact I'm writing this letter, I'm compelled to do it. I've got continuing pressure on me that is forcing me, causing me to do these things. Now, when I saw that, first of all, what I had, I don't know what you've picturing in your mind, but I pictured in my mind someone being arrested, handcuffed, arms at the back, forced into a riot van. See, is Paul being forced with his arm up his back to tell the people about Jesus? Is that what it means? You've got that control there in one of the translations. Constraining, urging, forcing, causing pressure, moving towards something. Is that what's happening to Paul here. What is causing his motivation? Now, I think a particularly useful um, analogy is maybe a shepherd. talks in the Bible a lot about shepherds. Okay, The Lord's my shepherd, Psalm 23. Jesus is the good shepherd. And the problem is, when we think of shepherds, usually what we think about is some guy with a dog going, yep, whip, whip, whistling and stuff. And the dogs are basically driving the sheep to a certain place. You know, the sheep are left in the field to do whatever they want until the shepherd wants to get them somewhere, maybe move from one field to the other. So he uses the dog, and with a dog, it's a fine line between the dog, um, you know, just barking at them and the dog actually attacking them. It's that fine line. It's done by fear. I don't know if you watch, you know, one man and his dog and stuff like that. It's, these dogs are amazing, but it's all done by driving the sheep in fear to scare them from this place to this place. And if we think, using this image of a shepherd in the Bible, sometimes we can think of God or Jesus being a shepherd who was driving us with a snapping dog at our our heels, where actually we're a bit scared, is it going to bite me? If I don't do this, if I don't go there, is God going to get me and cause problems in my life? Now, I went to um, North Africa a few uh, few months ago now, and uh, I saw some shepherds. And actually it was really weird because you'd be going down there equivalent of the M25 and right up against the, the, uh, the road's edge was a load of sheep and a man just standing there. And then you go around the roundabout and in the middle of the roundabout was some sheep 
and a shepherd standing there. And you're like, what is going on? And I asked, they said, well, actually, you know, there's not, in this country, you know, in England, there's grass everywhere. Just leave the sheep to do it. In that country and in the, the Bible times, food was scarce. So what you'd have, the shepherd would spend his whole day walking around looking for food for the sheep. And the sheep would be compelled to follow the shepherd. Why? Not because they feared for their life, not because they were scared of a dog, but because they loved the shepherd, had a relationship with the shepherds, and they knew that the shepherd would care for them. In the Bible it talks about the shepherd being willing to lay down their lives for them. King David was a shepherd, and he fought lions and bears and all sorts to protect his sheep. And the whole purpose of the shepherd was to go around and lead his sheep so they could find sustenance. The Lord's my shepherd. He leads me by, into green pastures, leads me beside quiet waters. That was scarce in the country of Israel where the psalm was written. The sheep are compelled not through fear, but through love and through trusting the shepherd and knowing the shepherd had the best interests at heart. You see, that was Paul's motivation. And when we look at motivations, actually we can look in the passage. So we look at verse 11, we think, okay, what's his motivation? Well, see, he says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Okay, so Paul is obviously a little bit scared of God. We're looking at, thinking of that image of that shepherd in this country with the, the dog at his heels. I'm a bit scared of God. Verse 10 says, you know, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him. So maybe Paul's a little bit scared. What happens if I don't do what I'm supposed to do? And I get to, you know, I die and I get before the, the Lord my God and he says, that wasn't good enough, was it? Is that what is driving Paul? Well, I don't think that's what it is. I love the Passion Translation, which is a new translation, more of a paraphrase, really. It says, for it is Christ's love that fuels our passion and motivates us. Why? He goes on to say, because we are absolutely convinced that he has given his life for us all. See, what compels, what motivates Paul, what urges him on, what constrains and guides his life is his absolute conviction that Jesus Christ loves us and has loved us so much that he has died on the cross for us. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, these words. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Paul is absolutely, totally convinced that that had happened for him. Next part of this verse says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, John in his letter is saying, the love of Christ, the fact that he died for us, should lead us, compel us onto loving others. Not because we have to, not because we're scared of what God might do, but because that is a natural response to such great and wonderful love that Jesus was willing to die for you because he loves you. And our response shouldn't be, oh, that was nice, thanks very much. Actually, our response, if we are convinced, absolutely convinced of that, is, well, I need to do something about it. I need to serve God. I need to make him my, my master. I need to, to follow him because I can trust him and I know that he has my best interest in heart, that he will take me to those places I need to go. 
And actually, I need to show that same love to others as well. But I have a question for you as we come to a close. And this is a really difficult question, a really challenging question. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that Christ loves you? That Christ died for you? Are you convinced that you have... You are a child of God, that God loves you and cherishes you and wants what's best for you. Are you convinced, there's some nods happening which is great, are you convinced that you can trust God in all things, despite outward appearances? Are you convinced? You can be convinced in different ways. You can be convinced through your knowledge. Some people are you know, very It's in their head and they can look at the evidence and they can read the Bible and say, I'm absolutely, totally convinced. You won me over through the arguments and the the reasonable, logical explanations. You have won me over. I am convinced. For others of you, it's about experience. Actually, because this happens, which can't be explained, I am convinced that God exists. And God loves me and Jesus Christ died for me. See, for most of us, it's probably a mixture of all those things. It's reading the Bible, it's the experiences that we have. But I will tell you now that if you are not convinced, then you won't be compelled. Paul is compelled because he is convinced of the love of Christ shown through the death on the cross. If you're not convinced, then you won't be compelled like Paul was to tell people about Jesus. So we talk about evangelism and mission. I remember as a child saying to God, I'll do anything, but just don't make me an evangelist. Please, not an evangelist. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go out and talk to people. That's scary. I'm fearful about that. And I know from past experiences, you can say, you know, some of you say, well, I haven't got the tools to go and tell people. I don't know what to say to them. I've put on, in previous churches, little courses, you know, come along and we'll tell you, you know, how you can tell people about Jesus. And you get there and no one turns up. Either they all know it, but I doubt it, because they ain't doing it. So I don't think knowledge or knowing how to do it is necessarily key. I think it's important that we do teach people, you know, if you um, Peter says, you know, you need to be, if someone asks you about your faith, you need to be able to explain it to people. So it is important. But actually, if you are compelled, if you're controlled, if you're forced onwards, if you've got a pressure to tell people about Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter what your knowledge is. It's just going to come out of you. You can't help but tell people about Jesus. But if you haven't got that relationship in the first place, if you are not convinced of what Jesus Christ has done for you, if you do not know that you are loved, you are not going to be compelled to tell others. Although, there are lots of things that drive us, isn't there? Lots of things that compel us. And perhaps Paul is having a little bit of a dig at those people who are all about show. Those religious teachers and leaders are all about, you know, it's all about me. And Paul's saying, look at my heart. It's not about me. It's not about trying to raise my profile. It's about Jesus. 
And it's about love, and therefore I just want to love and convince you in the best way that I can. See, I think as I come to a close, I think a lot of this comes to the fact that we don't know God and we don't know ourselves. That we're not convinced because we don't know that we have a God who loves us, a God that we can trust, a God that we can rely on and follow, a God who is a good shepherd. And also we don't know ourselves. Perhaps we are insecure. Perhaps what drives us is seeking the approval of others. Because we don't realise how loved and accepted we are. We don't realise that Jesus died, not just for everyone, but also for you. Jesus died for you because he loves you. And when we don't know God and we don't know ourselves, It leads to fear. Fear of natural things. Fear of supernatural things. Fear of other people and what they might think. Fear of failure, of not getting it right. And you know what? You may always have that fear in your life. But actually, if you are compelled, then despite that fear, you will act. Because having courage doesn't, isn't the removal of fear. If you don't fear, you don't need courage, do you? Courage is the fact that despite my fear, I'm going to act because I am compelled to do so. Do you know that you are loved? Do you know that Christ has died for you? Are you convinced and therefore are you compelled despite your insecurities, despite your fear of failure or other people to tell people about Jesus Christ and the love that not only that he has for you but he has for them as well. Really, I think the key to this, the key to becoming absolutely convinced is our relationship and our intimacy, intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And actually, what I want us to be able to do in every single service is draw us to a place of intimacy with God. doesn't mean you can't find those places the rest of the week. But actually, something we want to do here is draw you to that place. And we're going to spend some time now not praying about fear, not binding fear. You can do that. If you want, if you want tools to know how to do that, I can give those to you. But actually, what I want us to do is spend some time being intimate with God. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to spend some time in silence and we're going to be silent for an uncomfortable amount of time because actually it does take time. And we're just going to welcome the Holy Spirit to come and meet with us. In a moment, if you are able, I'm going to ask you just to stand. And if you just want to receive the Holy Spirit and you just want to feel that intimacy, which I can't force... And you can't force. All we can do is be open to what God wants to do with us by his Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask you to just stand there like that. This isn't for all of you. Some of you might be actually, you know, know, I'm okay, thank you. That is fine. I'm talking about those of you who really just, it's hit you and you think, actually, I need to be convinced. I need to be compelled. And therefore, I need to be intimate with God. So I just want you to just uh, stand like that, ready to receive. Others of you, if that's not you, which is fine, have a look round. Think, ask God, is there someone I should be praying for?
And we're just going to be quiet and we're just going to wait on God and just see what happens. Does that make sense? Okay. If you'd like to stand, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 3, which is something that Paul wrote to the letter, uh, wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus. And it was a prayer for the, that church, and it's a prayer for you this morning. And then we're just going to be quiet. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its names. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long And high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Lord, we just pray, come Holy Spirit, come. Come now and fill this place. Come now and fill our hearts. Draw us now into a place of intimacy with you. In the name of Jesus. I think for some of you, maybe you do feel compelled and urged, but It seems like you're wading through treacle. There seems to be so much slowing you down. So much stopping you from moving forwards. If you feel that's you, if you want to raise your hand, then we'd love to come and pray for you. If not, it doesn't matter. To be in a place of receiving from God. You can sit down, you can stand, whatever's comfortable, but just find a place where you can just be intimate with your Heavenly Father.